We're going to be in James chapter 3. We're going to finish chapter 3 today. I've got a quick announcement before we get going. Um, I am, Haley and I are going to take our family on a, on a trip. We got to go to a wedding out of town. Um, and there's, there's, uh, eight of us and eight seats in the car and we got an eight hour drive. And, um, so this morning I'm already dreading that experience. And there's something about trying to get a family across a couple states that, that can be real stressful. Um, because Haley wants to eat lunch about 10, 15 a.m. And everyone else is starving at 1.30. Um, and you know, when you're driving in a car full of your family like that, you've got to make decisions and there's no decision that makes everybody happy, right? You got to do what's best for the whole. And so with that said, with that in mind, uh, we've prayed and thought about our service times. And we want you to know that we are going to go back to one service on Hilton Head and one service in Bluffton. With, we're going to do both live services. We won't use screens at all um, for the time being. And we feel like that's the healthiest scenario for the whole family. Now, I know that, that, that there's no such thing as a perfect scenario for everybody. Um, but what that's going to look like is we're going to have a 10 o'clock service on Hilton Head. And we are going to have an 11 o'clock service in Bluffton every week. One 10 on Hilton Head, one 11 in Bluffton. Don't worry about that. The way that they're going to lay over, it's going to work. We figured this out because we're very smart people. Okay. So for, uh, this is going to start November the 13th, Brad. November the 13th, so next Sunday will be just like this Sunday, but the following Sunday, we're going to transition. Um, your, this service will be at 10 a.m., not 9 a.m., and um, Bluffton service, your service will be at 11, uh, 11 p.m., a.m., p.m., a.m., 11, 30 minutes, 30 minutes later. Um, and we think that's going to be best for the whole family. I know that any kind of transition can be can be hard, but um, just ask you to... Think about all the little kids in the car that need to stop for the bathroom, if that makes sense. <laughs> Try to walk with us and think about the whole picture. Um, and we think it's going to be good, healthy for our volunteers, for um, our staff, for for everyone pulling off Sunday mornings. Amen. You guys okay with me so far? Okay, all the complaints, again, go to Seth, okay? <laughs> Seth. All right, let's pray for the word. Father, in Jesus' name, we ask this morning that you would wash us with the water of this word. Would you cleanse our souls with truth? Lord, we live in a world full of agendas, full of propaganda. Um, Lord, we turn all of that off today. We ask that you would speak to us from the truth of this holy word. Wash us, Lord. Speak to us, Holy Spirit. We've come to feast at the table of Jesus, to know you, to worship you. We love you. Church, just tell them, just say, I love you, Jesus. We love you this morning. Jesus name we pray. Amen. Amen. Again, we're in James three, verse 13 through 18. So we're finishing chapter three. As I studied this week, the, the story of Absalom came to mind. Um, you remember Absalom, um, his sister Tamar was, um, was raped by their half brother. And, um, do you remember the story? David didn't David the father, so Absalom's the son of David. David didn't respond the way that Absalom thought was right. He didn't act uh, in a way that Absalom thought was just. And so Absalom was frustrated and bitter that his sister had been raped and his father, who is not only his father, but his father's also the king, so the judge, the justice enforcer as well, that that 
David didn't respond in the way that Absalom thought was appropriate, and Absalom grew bitter and frustrated. And do you remember the story? Absalom asked David if if David and all the family would come with him uh, to where the sheep were being sheared. And David said, "There's no need for us to come." And and Absalom asked, "Well, well, can my brother Amon come?" And uh, David said, "Amon can come with you." And Absalom told his the commanders, his leaders. He said, um, "When Amon is drunk with wine." When his spirits are high, I'll give you word and I want you to kill him. Um, and so because David hasn't responded the way that Absalom thought appropriate, Absalom's now set up a murder. And he, he draws Amon out, gets Amon drunk, and has Amon put to death. And now remember, this put a great strain on da- David and Absalom's relationship. Eventually, David allows Absalom to come back to Jerusalem, but, but Absalom still didn't have a relationship with David and he he grows in bitter and frustration and he begins to develop an ambition for leadership. Second Samuel fifteen four. Let me read this to you, okay? Absalom would say Absalom would stand at the gates, the gates are the place of justice in in antiquity, uh, where people would come to argue their case. You know, if you had a essentially a lawsuit against a neighbor or you had been wronged, you would come to the gates, that's where the elders and the leaders would sit and they would kind of determine at the gates uh, what was just or what was right. So Amon would sit at the uh, Absalom would sit at the gates and wait for people to come with with an offense or a problem. And this is what Absalom would say: Second Samuel fifteen four. Oh, that I were the judge in the land! Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. So now watch what Absalom's doing. He wants David's position. He wants leadership. There's a selfish ambition in him. And so he's going to stand at the gates to the place of justice, and he's going to continually promote himself as being the the ultimate wise one. If I were in the position, if I had the authority, John Gill, who is maybe one of the best Baptist thinkers, definitely the best Baptist thinker of the 18th century, wrote commentaries from Genesis to Revelation, wrote a systematic um, there's a lot of work right now to kind of revive Gill. He's a great thinker. Gill, commenting on this text, points this out. He says, it appears that Absalom had no office under the king, either because of his crime, and so, the, and so David thought he wasn't fit, or because David thought he was an ambitious, aspiring man, and that it was not safe or wise to put him into any office. Okay, what did Gill just point out? That... Absalom's the son of the king. So Absalom, the, the prince, they usually have some kind of role. They have some kind of political role. They have some kind of office of authority. But Gil wants us to see that although Absalom lives in Jerusalem, David's given Absalom zero authority. Why has David given Absalom zero authority? Because David obviously thinks that Absalom's not safe. David thinks that Absalom is filled with selfish ambition He's murdered David, although he's David's son and feels that he should have some right to authority, some, some prominent position. David's saying there's something in his heart that's off. So David stiff armed him. Okay. David's, David's held him down. He's not going to have a role, but Absalom being stiff armed by authority because of what's in his heart. Absalom starts to try to manipulate his way into leadership, and he does so by promoting himself as being the ultimate wise one. 
Now, here's where we're sliding into the thought that James is getting after. James clearly has an opponent as he writes, and he is saying that there are some within this church, writing to the Jerusalem church, there are some who are actually bitter and filled with selfish zeal and selfish ambition, but they are promoting themselves as the, as the ultimate wise ones in hopes of gaming power and authority. And James is saying to the church, you better make sure you have enough discernment to know what's God's wisdom and what's the wisdom of hell that's really after self-promotion. Does this make sense so far? James is going to say, you've got some in your midst, they say they're wise. You've got some in in your midst who say that they've got leadership and that they should be in charge. They're jockeying for position. And you better make sure, church, that you can see through it. Make sure you can define what is godly wisdom and make sure you discern your leaders. Now, from here, I was talking to Haley this week. Um, We were riding in the car and talking about feminism um, because Haley's a feminist. Um, She's like, Haley, when you talk about like women with ambition to be in leadership, Haley's like, please leave me alone. Like I'll I'll be at home with my kids. Um, But we were talking about the feminist movement, and I was telling her that um, there was a pastor that was being blasted for saying that, um, for teaching male headship, right? We believe in male headship in the home, um, meaning, male headship means this, men in the room, hear me. It means you are responsible before God for the decisions made in your house. It does not mean that you make every decision with kind of a heavy fist because you're in control. It just means that the decisions that are made, you've got to answer for um, so it doesn't mean we don't listen to our wives and try to hear their perspective and hear wisdom. It doesn't mean we, we point our finger and tell everyone what to do. It just means when all is said and done, we're going to be responsible for what happened in the home, um, which also means you're going to be responsible for the way you treated your wife. Um, throw that out there for you. And so uh, the pastor was teaching male headship. And, of course, we believe in male headship in the family, that the, the family is the, the man's ultimately responsible. But he was making the point that... Um, the family submits to the to the patriarch. The wife needs to be submissive to the husband. Uh, but the the pastor was making the point that the Bible also gives the women, as a woman, you get to pick who you submit to. You pick your husband. And so sometimes, and we, this is what we were really talking about, is sometimes when we get into marriage counseling with folks, the wife doesn't like the husband and doesn't want to submit and feels like he's an idiot. And I want to just say, well, you, you married him. Nobody make you marry him. And this is actually a biblical proposition, women in the room, young women in the room. You don't marry on the basis of of uh, physical attraction alone. You better be smart about who you pick. And this is actually kind of what James is arguing here. And I think when we think about church, well, even when we think about business and life, James is saying you should discern what is godly wisdom and submit to people who you see as wise and godly. Again, that the best scenario here is natural relationships. Wives, don't don't pick a man just because he looks good and makes a lot of money because the Bible is going to ask you to submit to him for the rest of your life. Be smart. When you when you choose a church or you move to a new area, so many here, you know, in our area is a, a bit transient. People move here and then they move away. When you move to a new area, maybe you get a job in Charleston and you move to Charleston, um, you discern church leadership. You don't just submit to the 
So does this make sense? You you've got to discern what is godly and and wise. You, you you're not you don't just pick you know the the biggest one that that looks the funnest. You 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 need to discern whether or not what's happening is from the Lord. And so James is encouraging the church. He's he's got a twofold goal here, like a good pastor teacher. First, he's going to teach the church what godly wisdom is and how to pursue it. But secondly, he's 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 rebuking those who are pursuing selfish ambition and he's saying to the flock, learn to see them for who they are. Define wisdom. Map it out. And when you start talking about people in leadership, who you're going to submit to who, or who you're going to promote in leadership, test them. Measure them according to these standards. Are you guys okay with me so far? I would say this is a great place, place young men and women. You, you test the character of the person you're dating or pursuing on the basis of godly wisdom. This, this is just smart, okay? Let's read the text. You guys with me? You ready? Verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, it's gentle, it's open to reason, it's full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. But the wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and of harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, let's take a moment to just kind of remember our context here. We said last week that as James began to talk to us about our tongues, do you guys remember where we were last week, um, that we need to learn to tame our tongue, that James is really after, especially in chapter 3, what we would call consecration, James is asking us that all of our lives be consecrated to the glory of God. And today, so so first he talked about faith without works is dead. If a poor man comes to you and says, I need clothes and food, and you say to him, be blessed and be warm, and you don't get up and cook a meal and find some clothing and do something about his problems, James is saying, your faith is really worthless. And, and so then he said, and if you're people of faith, I want you to learn to shut your mouths and consecrate your tongues to this gospel. May your mouth spill forth pure water and not salt water. You shouldn't be a person who speaks blessing and cursing. The tongue is a wild beast that you're going to have to give a lot of energy to tame, but you're called to tame it, right? We talked about that. Let's tame that tongue. Consecrate your lips to God. Now he's turning again, and he's talking to us about a very intimate place in the soul, in the heart of a man or woman. He's, he's calling us to recognize that within our chest, we sometimes carry this, this selfish desire for glory and for attention and for worship. We want to be the center. We want to be praised. We want people to see us. See us for how great we are. Love us. Think of us as beautiful and important. 
or wise and intelligent. And James is saying there is this place in you, this throne in you, where you want to sit on the throne and receive all the glory, and you need to make sure, make real sure, that that throne in the place of your soul is is given to Jesus and Jesus alone. And so it's a very intimate place we're talking about today. The hidden place of the heart. We're talking about motives. And, 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 and as Christians, we have to be willing to allow the word of God to dice up our motives. When the scripture talks about the word of God being living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing between soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The thoughts or the motives of the heart. And then, and then Hebrews goes on to say, no man is hidden from God's sight. We're all naked and exposed. God sees the hidden motives in our heart. And the word of God is a sharp blade that cuts, that pierces, that trims away the fat. So we need to be open to this kind of putting our heart on the altar and saying, God, purify it, wash it, cleanse it, have your way in it. So again, James today is he's talking about wisdom but he's talking about wisdom from a Hebraic concept, and we'll get into that here in a second. So James opens with a challenge. He says, who is wise among you? And if you'll read this carefully, you'll see that James is being quite confrontational here. The language is, is very confrontational. He's, he's calling some to the front of the congregation. Who among you are claiming to be wise? Who among you are claiming to be the great leaders? Who among you are claiming to be those who deserve prominence and position? Why don't you come to the front and let's have a conversation? You kind of feel the confrontation there? Who's wise? Who who, who of you are bolstering yourselves up? And he says, if you are wise, show your wisdom in good works and in meekness, humility. And so he's immediately wanting us to see that godly wisdom, it produces Godly wisdom, it bears fruit. And in the, in the first and the primary fruit of godly wisdom is humility. It's humility. Jesus' greatest attribute, the, the character that, that ran to the surface of who he was, was gentleness and meekness. And Jesus is the manifestation of wisdom. He's the ultimate wise one. He is wisdom incarnate. And so if Jesus is wisdom incarnate, and Jesus' primary attribute is humility... Any of you and any of us who walk in pride and arrogance, we do not have wisdom. The first thing James is saying. If you're an arrogant person, you do not have godly wisdom. Period. Now what James just made us stumble into is trying to understand what what the Bible means by wisdom. What is the Hebraic concept of wisdom? I was teaching our teenagers this week, last week, through the wisdom literature. So we're talking a lot about um, Job is considered wisdom literature. Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Um, Song of Solomon is considered a, a kind of a poetry wisdom literature. And we were talking about the fact that that wisdom in the, in the Jewish mind had nothing to do with IQ. Had nothing to do with the sharpness of your intellect. When you start talking about, if I give you an IQ test, the, the test is supposed to show me how effective your mind is in receiving information, processing information, and outputting information. Like how, and if you think of the, the mind as, as, as kind of a muscle, like, like some of us are born with brains that work quicker. You store information better. 
Some of us naturally can look at a, a, a math equation and just put it out. And that would show on an IQ test that you have a, you have a propensity towards a, a strong intellect. Now, how many of you know that some people can do, to do finances to their blue in their face, but if they're cheating on their wife, they're dumb. Okay, see, the Bible doesn't talk as much about how intellectually sharp you are. It's going to challenge us to use our intellect to study the word, but the Bible wants us to understand that as we digest the scriptures, the wisdom of the word, wisdom is not about how quickly you can do a math equation or can you remember dates and output the dates on a piece of paper. The Bible doesn't really care. The Bible wants you to how to know how to make wise decisions when someone tries to lure you away from your spouse. The Bible wants you to know how to handle your money in a God-honoring way. The Bible wants you to discern and to see when a culture is falling towards idolatry and wants you to discern and see to make good decisions about how to remain faithful to God and God alone. Godly wisdom is a lot more about making good decisions, life decisions. And so from here, James, again, he has a relationship with Proverbs. James is very much quoting, interacting with Proverbs. Just just for a minute, remind yourself of kind of the context of Proverbs. Proverbs teaches us that um, wisdom promotes righteousness. Proverbs 2, 7 through 8. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice, watching over the saints. He's, God stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk in integrity, and he guards our paths. So again... Sound wisdom stored up by God for us helps us to walk righteously and justly. Now, Proverbs is very much written with this idea of a parent-child relationship. So, now I'm just talking, but when you think about parenting, if I asked you, um, assuming that, that a good portion of us in the room are parents, if I asked you, what do you want for your kids? What kind of life do you want your kids to live? You would essentially espouse for me wisdom. You wouldn't, unless unless you are incredibly selfish and don't really love your kids. You ask me, Caleb, what do you want for your kids? I'm not going to say I want them to be multimillionaires and prop their feet up and be able to sleep with whoever they want to sleep with and to be famous. I don't care about that for my kids. What what would I say? I want my kids, I want my daughters, I I have three daughters. I want my daughters if it's God's will to fall in love with a man who loves God with all of his heart, I want them to live faithfully to their spouse. When they get married, I want them in God's name, in Jesus name to live solely devoted to their spouse. I want them. I pray this. I pray this. Um, if not daily, weekly over my kids, over each kid, I pray, God, would you keep them from pornography? Would you keep them from addiction, drug addiction, alcoholism, keep my kids from sexual perversion and keep my kids from addiction. Now, if you, if you just go there, then you get the proverb saying, don't, don't be a heavy drinker. You get the proverb saying, understand, young man, that there are going to be promiscuous women who hope to allure you and entice you away from your spouse. You get Song of Solomon. I had a, like, just a joy of a time, which is probably strange to say, talking to our youth about the Song of Solomon, about this intimate book 
that it is really very much about sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. But the, but the primary goal of the book, the promotion of the book is that romance is good and is beautiful. Make sure you honor the gift of romance and, and live it out in a godly way. And so, so the book of, of Song of Solomon is very much about love that woman, the woman of your youth, love her for the rest of your life. Delight yourself in that woman. Don't, don't let other women lure you away. And the same thing to women. Don't let other men lure you away with their charisma. Be faithful to the love of your life for the rest of your life. And so when you ask me, Caleb, what do you want for your kids? I want my kids to live a healthy life that honors Christ. I want them to, to marry one person who loves Jesus. I don't care what they look like. I've said this to you before. Let's do it again. I do not care what color the man is that my daughters marry. I don't care what color they are. I care what's in their heart. They can be purple. If they love Jesus, we're good. Okay? So, so you, you catch me? I want them to, I want them to marry and to love a, a man who loves Jesus. I don't even care if he's ugly. Okay? And much prefer an ugly man than one who doesn't love Jesus. Okay? So, so there we realize that Proverbs, it's written from a parent child perspective and it's trying to encourage the the child towards godly wisdom to the path of righteousness because everything that is not the path of righteousness is the domain of hell so so wisdom is godliness and foolishness is hellish this is the biblical perspective proverbs 1 8 opens with hear my son your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching Right? And so the wisdom is coming from father and mother, and it's asking the child, hear our instruction, hear our wisdom that will promote godliness and health and purity for the rest of your life. Proverbs 29, 3. He who loves wisdom makes his father glad, but a companion of prostitutes squanders his wealth. He who hears his father's wisdom makes him glad. But if you go after prostitution, you squander wealth. Why does the father care about that? Because the, the godly perspective is that there is, there's, there's wealth being passed through inheritance and generations. Proverbs says that a godly man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. The classic parable of the prodigal son is what? That a man took his inheritance, his family's inheritance, and squandered it with prostitutes. And so the Bible is saying, here, to the young man, you need to live pure sexually. Don't squander your wealth. That would be to dishonor your father. We're trying to make the case. I'm trying to build the case for you that James has in mind that the church needs to learn to be people of godly wisdom. And godly wisdom is not about intellect. And I've said to you this before. But again, when we talk about eldership or, or, or teaching the Bible... We, we don't just say, who's the smartest person in the room? Whoever's the smartest person in the room, then you get to be the pastor. No, we're, we actually are looking for wisdom, godliness. Godliness expressed through, through life. So the first thing that James, James wants us to see is that wisdom is a gift from God. Wisdom comes every time James gives it to us here. Wisdom comes from where? Above. Wisdom that comes from above. It's a gift from God expressed to us through the person of the Holy Spirit. 
We find it in the scriptures. This is why we need to be people of the scripture. We read the scriptures. We, we meditate upon the scriptures. We memorize the scriptures. And as we do so, the Bible wants us to make decisions on the basis of what we uncovered from the voice of the spirit, right? When we talk about how we steward our finances, the Bible wants you to steward your finances on the basis of biblical precepts. The Bible wants you to honor your wife on the basis of scripture, Ephesians 5. Love your wife as Jesus loves the church. The Bible, wives, wants you to submit to your husbands on the basis of scripture. So when your husband is trying your nerves, okay, he didn't do the dishes again for the 18th time, you're allowed to speak up. You're allowed to say, hey, dummy. Just kidding, don't say that. That probably would be, that might be overstepping. We do that, but it's all good. Haley calls me dummy and I giggle. I like that. I think that's funny. Um, you're allowed to speak up, but you're called to be submissive and honoring. And so the Bible wants you to live your life recalling the scriptures. What did it say? Drawing it to the surface and then express it. And that, that moment of expressing the scriptures in your life, the Bible calls that moment wisdom. You guys hearing me? That's what wisdom is. It's pulling from, from God's precepts, from God's teaching. Pulling it up into the moment where your husband tries you and expressing godly precepts. That's wisdom. That's what the Bible's after. So from here, we're returning to the confrontation. Jesus is saying to a group of people within the church, or Jesus, James is saying, who among you is wise? It, it seems from the context that there are some who are jockeying for leadership, undermining the church's leadership on the basis of claiming that they know better, that they could accomplish more. And James is saying, if you were really wise, you'd, to start, you'd be humble. If you were really wise, you would be sowing peace. And before he gets into this argument at all, he's saying, why don't you show me your wisdom? Let's see the fruit of your life. You catch what he's saying there? Show me your wisdom by your works. Let's talk about your marriage. Let's talk about your relationships with your employer or your employees. Show me the fruit of wisdom in your life. And then, then this is why we wanted to talk about Absalom today. Because he says, if you have envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and cover up the truth. In, in other words, the NLT put this really well. If you have envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't try to cover up that fact by continually boasting about how wise you are. Envy and selfish ambition. If you desire, if what's in your, what's on the throne of your heart still is a desire to be praised, to be on the platform or whatever role, in the, whether it's in family, that's what's really interesting about Absalom, right? He's jockeying for position, but it really has to do with his family. There's nothing as gross as a family that's ate up with selfish ambition. Everyone trying to decide who's going to be the decision maker. Spouses who, who want to hoard the finances. You can't see what's happening financially because I'm the decision maker. That happens on husband and wife. That's, there's a gross thing that happens when you have selfish ambition in the family. But Absalom's jockeying for political power because his dad's the king. And he's jockeying. There's an element of, of, of worship in his jockey too. The king of Israel is anointed king by the, by the prophet. And so he's, he's trying to jockey for our spiritual position as well. And so I think we see a threefold case of selfish ambition in the life of Absalom. 
And I think James wants to challenge this threefold case in us. Is there, is there in any way a religious jockeying in us? We want to be the decision maker in the house of God. We want to be in the, in the forefront. We want to be seen as spiritual. See that so much. You want to use the gifts of the spirit because you want people to think you're prophetic. You have no concern with actually delivering a prophetic word that delivers someone from bondage. You just want everyone else to see how spiritual you are. It's not prophetic. It's selfish. You want people to be healed so bad that you actually don't care about the sick person at all. You just want everybody to know that you have an anointing. That's selfish. James is saying, don't cover up your selfishness and your your selfish ambition by constantly going around like Absalom and telling everybody, if I was in charge, then things would be good. I know better. If I was the leader, then we'd have some real fruit. If, if I was making the decisions, what, what's Absalom doing? He said, I'm wiser than David. I'm smarter than David. I've got better discernment than David. Why is he claiming to be wise? Really, because he's ate up with zeal, selfish ambition. James is saying, if you have pride in your heart, own it. There's selfish ambition and, and ungodly zeal in your heart for leadership, for power to be seen. Own it and repent. Get on the ground, confess your sin, and ask the Spirit to deliver you of that desire for power. But don't walk around running your mouth about how great of a leader you are. You kind of catch what James is doing there? He's aggressive. I like it. So again, he's going to say, godly wisdom comes from God, comes from above. And then he says, but if you live by selfish ambition, and, and the, the word actually is zeal, we'll talk about that in a bit, and envy, then you're actually operating in earthly, unspiritual, and demonic wisdom. So he gave us two categories. Okay, you guys with me so far? We've got two categories here that he wants us to understand and to discern. First, we have the category of the wisdom that comes from above, godly wisdom. He's given us some traits to be able to identify that kind of wisdom. And then he's given us a second category, which he's called earthly, so from below, or unspiritual, or demonic. So we have a second category for the sake of today. We'll just call it demonic wisdom, earthly wisdom. So he gives us two categories. He's going to define for us what both of these categories look like, what kind of lives or fruit they express. And he's telling us he wants us to discern and pursue godly wisdom and to also be able to discern what kind of people are around us that are hoping to lead us. So first, let's let's start with the earthly, the unspiritual, and the demonic, okay? The wisdom that people claim to have that is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. He says this type of wisdom comes from envy. Now, the Greek word here is actually both words that he's going to use. They're unique, meaning that they're not used often in, 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 in the literature, in the New Testament. Um, and they carry really interesting connotations. And so envy is actually the word for zeal. And there's some conversation about, which I don't know that I would go this far down the road, but it, it's actually the word where you, where you get the word zealot. Um, and so think in first century um, Jewish culture, there were a group of people called the zealots. And the zealots were jockeying for what? For power with the, the hope of 
gaining power by violence. Um, and so it may be that James has in mind this group of people that are trying to use physical force to gain political power, um, and they're covering up their desire for power with religion, claiming to be the wise ones. It may be in mind that he has that. He may have that in mind. But the, but the idea of, of zeal is not always negative, right? Jesus says, zeal for your house will consume me. Meaning that, that Jesus had such a love and a zeal for the temple that when he walks in and people are abusing it, he just starts throwing stuff over. He gets out a whip and starts cracking that thing because he had such a passion for God's house, for God's temple. So zeal, biblically speaking, is not always negative, but there is a negative way that zeal is expressed. Zeal, and, and the Bible here calls it envy, is the idea of wanting so badly what God has not given you. And you want it so bad that you'll just take it by force. You'll manipulate. You'll jockey. You'll strive against. This kind of envy is an unbridled pursuit of power. This kind of envy believes that you are right, you're always right, and the only thing that would be right is for you to be in the position of prominence. This is Cain hating Abel, not because of what Abel did. Abel did nothing wrong. Cain just wanted Abel's position of favor. So he says, ungodly, earthly, demonic wisdom is actually driven by envy or zeal for power that's not bridled. And then he says, next, this is a form of selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. This Greek here is really unique. Um, and so there's some debate about what he means exactly. But the most, um, most scholars agree, most commentators agree, that the word actually carries a heavy political connotation. And the only other real time we have it being used, Aristotle is using it um, to describe a political pursuit of power that's partisan, partial, wanting to destroy the other side of the aisle, even if the facts of the matter are not honestly presented. And we obviously see that in our culture, right? Like I, I was uh, <laughs> trying to watch my, my Knowles play yesterday, and we're obviously in a election cycle coming up, and I think it's really important that we vote. Um, but but I was just laughing because I'm thinking about this scripture, you know. Um, I'm laughing because every ad is like, they're not actually talking about it at all about their policies or or why what they're promoting is, is going to be beneficial for society. It's like, so-and-so had a divorce, and he hit his wife. And I'm going to show you pictures of, of his finances. And, um, but in our context, there's not even really a pursuit of, is this true or not? It's just slander the other side in hopes of gaining power. Slander. James wants us to recognize that, 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 that partisanship, this kind of slandering, especially within the context of the saints and the context of the family, slandering um, your small group leader because you think they're not a good teacher, so you're going to try to pick apart their, their life and talk about the fact that they had a divorce in their early 20s and ignore the fact that the Bible gives us like this concept of repentance and newness of life in Jesus. Just ignore that. So we can talk about their divorce in their early 20s. 
because, because you really don't like their teaching and think you're a better teacher than them? James says, that's selfish ambition. That's not godly wisdom. And, and so we, we see this in church life. Sometimes we see this in family life. You, you start to gossip, slander, pick apart who you view as your opposition, who's actually not your opposition. The only reason you view them as your opposition is because you want their position that God hasn't given you. So, so James is saying, you'll know demonic wisdom by its fruit. It'll be zealous for power. It'll operate with this kind of political, partisan, selfish ambition that's really just trying to grab at a position and is not trying to pursue God for what's good for the church or good for the family or trying to honor God's ordained um, structure. Then James is going to say, where you find this kind of demonic wisdom, where you find this kind of selfish ambition and zeal, there you can be sure that you will find every vile practice. When there is this kind of demonic activity in a family or in a church or in a business or in a political party, there you will find every kind of sin. You'll find gossip, sexual misconduct, perversion, backbiting, belittling. There is a very high possibility that when you find these things, there's demonic wisdom at play. So again, you, you move or you just moved here and your church, you're trying to figure out where you're going to plant your family for a church. If, if there's demonic wisdom leading, you will find every kind of vile practice at play somewhere. That's sometimes why when a church scandal comes out or a church falls apart because the, uh, I heard a story the other day where half of the staff, they were living in, in uh, sexual sin And it's like, yeah, when there's ungodly wisdom, demonic wisdom at play and that at the top, yeah, you're going to find all those practices. You shouldn't even be surprised. The tree's going to bear its fruit. And so James again is saying, learn to discern and to pursue what is heavenly wisdom. Now, next, let's turn to godly wisdom. What does James define? How does he describe? How does he categorize godly wisdom? One, it's pure. Godly wisdom promotes purity. It's undefiled and motive of heart. Godly wisdom too is peaceable. It promotes unity and charity. Its aim is love and community within the family. Godly wisdom is willing to submit. Godly wisdom doesn't need to be the head. It's not looking for power. It's looking for the, for the well-being of the family structure, the well-being of the church, the well-being of a community. Godly wisdom is gentle. Everyone, I want you to say this word, gentle. Godly wisdom is gentle. It's not looking to oppress or crush. It's, again, looking for the well-being of the family. And so it comes in gentleness. Listen to this one. Godly wisdom is open to reason. Church, hear me. It's open to reason. Meaning, those who walk in godly wisdom are open to other people's perspectives and to reasoning through what's true, what's not true. It's opening to listening. And so, for instance, we believe in a plurality of elders. And so when, when we're talking about making decisions or, or changing or, you know, there's a big thing coming up, I need to be willing to sit with our elders and listen and reason and talk through. And sometimes an elder will say, I, there's a risk here. We need to be aware that this decision could have this outcome. And I have to listen and reason with. Godly wisdom is reasonable. It does not walk into a room and say, everyone's going to sit down and shut up and do what I say. 
because I know it's best, and I know how we should move forward. Godly wisdom listens, and then reasons with the Scripture and logic, prays, and tries to walk with the Spirit, open to reason. Are you open to reason? Godly parents let their kids express their frustration and reason with them. There's sometimes where I go to discipline a kid, and I realize through conversation that my perspective is totally wrong. What I thought happened is not what happened. And so I reason with my kids, still going to discipline if discipline is necessary. I'm not saying we don't discipline, but we want to reason with and make sure that we are, we are disciplining in a godly way towards godliness. In a marriage, you should, you should reason with your spouse often. Where, um, again, we got a lot of kids to parent. And so one kid acts out, and Haley and I, there have been probably three conversations the last two weeks where we're both going, Haley's saying, here's my perspective, here's what I should, think we should do, and I'm going, here's my perspective. Or sometimes Haley will say, what do you, what do you think? What, are, what should we do? And I just go, I don't know. I'm going to need about a day and a half to think this one through. Um, and then we, we, we sit down at dinner, and we're supposed to be on a date, and all we're doing is reasoning, Right? talking through the angles. Is this what's happening? I don't know. And then we're, we're, we're praying. We're, we need to pray for discernment. You reason together. That's what godly wisdom does. It reasons with one another. Merciful. Godly wisdom is merciful. Are you merciful? Now, notice that these traits feel a lot like the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Feels a lot like the fruit of the spirit, and so, so again, godly wisdom is pursuing the spirit and his wisdom and his leadership and counsel as we lead and make decisions, as we decide how we're going to live life. And then James closes his thought with this: the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You should want a harvest of righteousness in this nation, in our town. There's, there's a Ah, shoot. You did this. Now we're talking about politics, and i got to say something that I want to say because it came up in my mind. Um, I'm trying to close, and you guys got me on the government thing. Um, there's a great, there's a great, it actually started, I was listening to a, a lecture about this. Um, in, in, in America's history, pastors before elections would all, Everyone preached a sermon about what was godly and told the church, here are the things that we should, be, we should care about as we vote. Here's what's godly and here's what's not godly. Here's what's godly wisdom and here's what's not. And we needed to talk about this. Pastors have done that for all of American history um, and, and largely because Americans obviously had the right to vote. Um, there was no point in having that conversation in Rome. Uh, it doesn't really matter what you think. Um, and so the churches, they talked a lot about what, what, and, and what we're told, it started about in the 70s or 80s. Anytime a pastor started to step into the realm of, of voting or how we should vote or think, they were immediately pointed at and said, you're political. You're too political. And pastors started to kind of cower. I don't want to be political. That was like that was a negative connotation. Well, when we talk about the way that we vote, we're really talking about our kids' future. You know what I'm saying? And so, like, what the, the idea of the separation of church and state, you guys know this. I don't know why I need to tell you, but you know that that, that really meant that the state was not going to tell the church what to do. Did not mean that the church could not talk to its people about what was godly when it comes to voting. 
And the church has always wanted the people in the church to vote because what we're really talking about is our family's future. So now there's a great conversation to have about what is Christian nationalism. That's kind of a buzzword right now. Um, I don't have the time to get into that today. You just got me talking about something I wasn't planning on talking about. Again, that's your fault. Um, but, but I'll just say this. Christian nationalism, we need to define what we mean by that. Um, but if by Christian nationalist, if you call me a Christian nationalist and what you mean is that I, I love America and want America to be Christian, so be it. Do, do I believe that, that when a country pursues Christianity and lives godly that there's good fruit to bear for our kids? Yes, I do believe that. If by Christian nationalism you mean that I'm in some way trying to enforce Christianity with a, with a knife or with a barrel, then yes, I do. I do not believe that that's what we should do. I've never promoted that violence is the way that we instill holiness. Holiness comes from the heart as the gospel is preached, period. You can't mandate holiness. But, but yes, of course I believe that Christianity is healthy for society. And why do I think we should vote in a way that promotes godly and wisdom? Why do I think that? Because I love your kids. Because I love my kids. I care about their future. Why do I think we should discern what kind of leaders we're voting into office? Because I love my neighbors. And, and that's where I think a lot of times when we're called, you're a Christian nationalist, what you're actually saying is I love, I love my neighbor. Yeah, yes, I do. Yes, I care about education. Yes, I care about morality. Yes, I care about issues of abortion. Because I, I love the generations. I care about what kind of nation our kids have. Not because I'm politically motivated with a partisan spirit. You guys kind of tracking that? It's really important that we, we are able to discern that. I think there was, gosh, whatever, here we are. There, there was without a doubt a demonic agenda to distract the church that happened in the last political cycle. Without a doubt. And some were enticed and lured down this road of trying to make everything about political partisanship. And, and I just want to say, um, Again, this is America. I can say what I want. I voted red. Okay, get over it. That, that's the way that I voted. Um, but that does not mean that I believe that if you're a Republican, you're a Christian, or that Republicans express Christianity perfectly. I don't believe that at all. I'm, I'm not first a Republican or first a Democrat or even first an American. I am first a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, I have to carry my, my, my slaveship into the way that I live and vote. Okay. And, and, and practically speaking, I'm going to have to express that in a booth and I need to discern what is godly wisdom. What are godly values? And, and golly, we get to, can I just be, can I just talk? You guys just, you're giving me permission to be honest. You just did it. I know that some of you guys are like, I, I don't, I don't want to hear what you have to say. Well, too bad. Okay. You just gave me permission to be honest. Um, I think it's very important that we vote our consciences in primary elections, in the primaries. So in the primaries, I'm voting. This is the person that I think best expresses godliness and policy and in character in the primaries. When we get to, to the, to, to the main election, so many times I get, we're just voting against the lesser of two evils, Right. I get that. So in some sense, what I'm trying to say, golly, that probably shouldn't be stepping into this. What I'm trying to say is that when you took a person like President Trump, I voted for him two times. 
did not vote for him in the primaries because there were character traits that did not look to me like godliness, godly wisdom. I voted for him twice because his, his, his policies were much better than the other option. But I think there's a, there is a problem if as Christians we say Trump is the, is the solution for America. No, man, Jesus is the solution for America. The gospel is the solution for America. I voted for him twice because it was the lesser of two evils. And I was not going to vote for someone who was promoting the slaughter of the unborn. Just not going to do that. Does that mean, and I'm I'm not going to, I'm not telling you how to vote, although I'm telling you, you need to vote. Does that mean in the next cycle, if, if Trump runs and we get into a primary that I'm going to vote for Trump? Not necessarily. I'm going to look for godliness and godly policies. I'm going to vote my conscience. We get to the election cycle or voting for president then I'm going to vote, for, I'm going to get the, the lesser of two evils. That's just the way it is. Now, everything I just said, you could say, Caleb, you're, you're a Christian nationalist. I say, I don't really care what you think, okay? Your opinion actually doesn't bother me. What is God's opinion of me, okay? I don't, that's actually fundamentally American too. So you're actually allowed to not care what other people think. Um, I, I stand before God. I don't stand before social media. You, you understand what I mean by that? I have to answer to God. I don't have to answer to what culture calls politically correct. Um, I, I want us to discern what is godly leadership, what is godly wisdom, and to pursue that on the basis of loving our children and grandchildren. I want us to care about what's being taught in our public schools, not because we're ate up with a demonic political spirit, but because I actually love the next generation. So, yes, I am going to care about what's taught in public school while I viciously promote the idea of homeschooling. Um, because I believe the church needs to care about the education of the next generation. I do. Okay. I'm saying all of this because I want you to see what James is trying to express. He is trying to express that the church needs to discern what is godly wisdom and what is a demonic pursuit of power And then he says, this is how you discern it. Godly wisdom is gentle. Godly wisdom is open to reason. Godly wisdom obviously expresses Christian values. He's saying you need to discern godly leadership in your, in your family. Okay. Again, young women, the Bible is going to call you to submit to your husband. Pick wisely. Choose wisely. When we start talking about marriage, wives and husband alike, you need to choose wisely, submit to godly leadership. We talk about where the place that you work. I know sometimes you, you just work where you have to work. But if you have a choice, choose godly wisdom wisely. When you choose a church or think about a church or think about a small group, choose on the base of godly wisdom. Draw out the categories. List out their fruit. Be a person who pursues the Spirit's leadership. We, we okay so far? I'll just wrap up there because I talked way too long. And that was 100% Brad's fault. All right, why don't you stand to your feet? We'll pray over the word and we'll slip into some altar time here. So Lord Jesus, we ask that you would make us a people of godliness. Make us a people of godly wisdom. Make us a people who express your nature, who, who live with intentionality. May our children and our grandchildren walk uprightly before you. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. And all the saints say amen.